From the studios in K of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio, science and technology that is accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Katie Mullally, and this morning, Lynn Ware Peak and I speak with the most interesting mathematician and statistician you'll ever talk to, Kit Yates. He joins to discuss his book, How to Expect the Unexpected, the Science of Making Predictions and the Art of Knowing When Not To. Then local resident Karen Strauss, who spent her entire career in the nuclear, ener nuclear energy arena, joins us. Is nuclear energy safe enough now to open our minds to using its potential? We will hear all about it from a lifelong scientist. This is Cool Science Radio, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. Well, ever since the dawn of human civilization, we've been trying to make predictions about what the world has in store for us. For just as long, we have been getting it wrong. Our next guest, Kit Yates, is a statistician, and he talks to us today about the science of making predictions and the art of knowing when not to. His new book is called How to Expect the Unexpected, and he joins us from England this morning. Kit Yates, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Quite a clever title. I assume that was sort of fashioned after the what to expect when you're expecting book. Is that? It, it, sounds, it feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? There's also a bit of um, something about known knowns and known unknowns. This, you know, idea of trying to expect what maybe has formerly been unexpected, giving people an idea of, yeah, how to make better predictions. So there's a bit of everything in there. That's right. Okay. Well, before we get into it, as we were talking in the green room here, you are in, in England and we had a difficulty with the time this morning and it has to do with England changing the or ending daylight savings before the U.S. does. And you mentioned that you wrote an article on it. So you have to tell us what your findings were. Yeah, so I wrote an article last week for The Guardian in the UK because our clocks went back last week. Uh, all about you know the the science benefits, uh, health benefits of daylight saving or or otherwise. But one of the things that I I read when I was researching for this, which didn't make it into the article, is that the US goes back uh, a week later, so that you have lighter, um, you have lighter evenings for the day of Halloween. So your your clocks go back, so you get um, dark coming on earlier later on in the year because Halloween uh, big candy apparently. Uh, lobbied for this so that more kids would be able to go out in the daylight uh, in the evening of Halloween. So I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's a lovely fact. I'm going to stand by that. It's very important. In this town, Halloween is one of the most important days. And and it it's cold and it is still light when the kids are out doing their yeah. thing. So. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are talking with Kit Yates. He's the author of the new book, How to Expect the Unexpected, The Science of Making Predictions and the Art of Knowing When Not to. Well, Kit, why is it that we even think we can predict an outcome? I think we're driven to do it. We need to know what's going to happen in the future, whether it's on the personal level to understand, you know, is it going to rain later today so I can take an umbrella with me? Uh, or even on the societal level, we need to know, you know, what's going to happen with the economy, what's going to happen with the climate. So, you know, we really need to make these predictions. Whether we are actually any good at doing it or not is a very different matter. Though. Um, speaking of being good, you know, we talk about being good at it. One of the things I love about your book is you talk about these different mathematical laws and formulas that have been used to predict outcomes. 
Can you give us a rundown of a few of your favorites from the book? Because they were really interesting in how you applied them to predictions. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the book is really about uh, the, the mathematical um, phenomena that we don't really realize, that we don't see, and that we we fail to predict. And it's about the mistakes that we make and, and learning from those mistakes. So one example is the phenomenon of nonlinearity. Um, so we, our brains are programmed to think in a linear way, in sort of straight lines, if you like. So you get a fixed in, uh, change in, in an input and you should get a fixed change in an output. So for example, you know, in the UK, we use Celsius to measure the temperature. Uh, in the US, it's Fahrenheit. But for a fixed change in Celsius, you should get a fixed change in Fahrenheit. And that's a linear relationship. But actually, some of the most important and complex phenomena in our lives are not linear. They don't work as a straight line. But we've been trained from a really early age with maths questions like, you know, if Jane pays five pounds for 10 grapefruits, how many does she get for 50 pounds? And, you know, you're paying 10 pounds as much, so you should, should get 10 pounds, uh, 10 times as many grapefruits. You should get 100 grapefruits. But no one stops to question, you know, what, what is Jane doing buying 100 grapefruits, right? It doesn't make any sense. But we're just programmed to, you know, that's the answer we need to give in this situation because we're drilled into the idea of the world being linear. But actually, there are all sorts of nonlinear phenomena um, and, and phenomena which don't obey this, these sorts of rules, which can trip us up if we're not careful. Mm. Well, so speaking of the linear uh, relationship between Celsius and Fahrenheit, there is a pretty, I would say, complicated just to figure out on the fly formula to figure out the difference between Celsius and Fahrenheit. And so most of us will remember that, oh, you know, whatever, do, you know, 45 degrees Celsius is always going to be whatever it is in, in Fahrenheit. I can't think of it now. Somewhere around 100 degrees, right? Yeah. Um, but so most of us go about doing it like that. So would you call that relationship linear or nonlinear? Yes, that's definitely a linear relationship. I think the formula is um, you add 32 and you times by 1.8 because each degree Fahrenheit is worth 1.8 degrees in Celsius. So it's definitely a, a linear relationship. If you draw it on a graph with Celsius on the bottom axis, on the horizontal axis, and Fahrenheit on the on the vertical axis, on the on the y-axis, if you like, then it looks like a straight line. What it isn't though is direct proportion. So we have to be a little bit careful with that. Direct proportion is a very special linear relationship where if you double the input, you double the output. So that might be a, um, used for like currency exchange. If I want to change pounds to dollars, if I double the number of pounds, then I double the number of dollars. But it's not the same as, as converting temperature because if I double the Celsius temperature, I don't double the Fahrenheit temperature. So you've got to be a little bit careful. But those are both linear relationships. But there are things that are non-linear, which we come across every day, like the relationship between the diameter of a pizza and the area of a pizza. So you might, you know, go to the restaurant and and think, well, should I get this um, this eight inch diameter pizza for ten dollars, uh, or should I get the sixteen inch diameter for twenty dollars? And it sounds like, well, you know, I've doubled the diameter and I've doubled the price, so it should be the same value for money. But of course, the area of a pizza scales with the square of the diameter. So you're actually getting twice as much pizza in your 16 inch. Well, in fact, you're getting four times as much pizza in your 16 inch pizza for just double the money. So it really pays to pay attention. And actually, those those price relationships that I've described are really true. There was a journalist who worked for New York Times who went out and surveyed 74,000 pizza prices. And he found he found that the price 
really does scale linearly with the diameter, but of course the area scales with the square, so you get better value for money the bigger pizza you get in general. Oh, that is such valuable information. <laughs> you know, important. one of, I mean, a couple of the things that we can think of, you know, as, as lay people, as what we make predictions about that may or may not be true are both the weather and the economy. And, you know, taking that very current example of all of the surprises that happened during with the economy during COVID. And, and here's just a, a little um, tangent, I suppose, on the economy. Well, here, I don't know if you're familiar with Park City, but we're a ski resort town and actually a year-round resort town. And we figured, you know, that the economy was going to tank and no one was going to come because people weren't traveling. Mm -hmm. But quite the opposite happened, that that being outside, as it turned out, <laughs> was a lot healthier than being inside. So everyone wanted to be outside and they also weren't flying to Europe as they normally would do for their vacation. So guess where they came? Right here. It was some of our best years. And mm -hmm. so would a statistician have come up with those sorts of models that could be in existence? So I think it's really important to say when we build mathematical models of the real world that our models are only as good as the assumptions that we put into them. And this is something that came up again and again with COVID, for example. Uh, you know, if you missed something important out of the model, like human behavioral change, then your model may only be of limited accuracy. And so, yeah, if you if you miss uh, those potential confounding factors out of your model, then you you might not see that. But this is this is an example of a of, of what I would call an unintended consequences. Uh, an example of a, a perhaps even a perverse uh, incentive. Sometimes we offer an incentive for, for doing something and it turns out that that incentive actually um, brings the opposite reward. So there's an example, uh, it's called the Cobra effect. And so when the English ran, the, ran India and the British Raj, there was a problem with Cobras. And so they put a bounty on the head of the cobras because they thought, you know, people will kill the cobras, bring the cobras in, and then we'll get rid of all the cobras. But of course, what happened was smart entrepreneurial people started breeding cobras uh, so that they could sell more of these cobras uh, to the British. And the British brought them up. And when they realized that this was going on, they said, right, no, we're not going to do this anymore. And then, of course, the cobra farmers not being able to feed them just launched them out onto the street and the problem became much worse. So these sorts of unintended consequences, like the ones you mentioned, are exactly the sort of currency of the book. And, and um, yeah, trying to foresee when those unexpected consequences will play out uh, is, is exactly the sort of thing that's in the book, yeah. Well, in your book, you do talk about these interesting formulas that I'm certainly not going to be able to apply in my life because statistics and I do not get along well. But you also provide these really interesting ways of better equipping ourselves to deal, deal with uncertainty. And I, the idea of mixing it up, breaking up our old habits to be more resilient, how does this help us deal with uncertainty? So I think we as a species are not very good at dealing with randomness and that's both um, seeing what randomness looks like. We, we tend to find patterns in random data, be that looking at the clouds and seeing a shape or looking at the man in the moon 
or even unfortunately more consequentially when people look at cases of cancer on a map of a city for example and they see a cluster in the data and they say well there must be some causative effect maybe there's something in the water around there or maybe there's power lines overhead which are causing this and then they try to lobby to change the situation and actually in truly randomly distributed data you expect to see clusters and you expect to see big areas of the city where there aren't any cancer cases for example so we're not very good at, at looking at randomness and 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 telling what is and what isn't random we're also not very good at being random ourselves so i think the best strategy for you take for t- for you to take when you're picking lottery numbers is to try to avoid picks that other people have picked so genuinely picking your numbers randomly from the selection of numbers is a really good option but actually we don't we don't do that very well we tend to avoid consecutive numbers so numbers that come one after the other and actually in the UK lottery there's 49 um numbers to pick from and you can pick six of them and in half of all draws you would expect two consecutive numbers so we we don't we don't think of that as random though because we think of it being well spaced we're also subject to something called middle bias where we tend to choose things which are away from the edges so this holds true when you're doing multiple choice uh, sat tests for example but it also holds true apparently when people are choosing uh, bathroom cubicles to go to um so yeah so so we we are subject to this middle bias and when people are filling out their lottery form if it's on a grid they tend to stay away from the edges of the grid and that means that sometimes they pick the same numbers as each other and so in the UK we had one instance where uh 253 people picked the same lottery winning numbers and had to share that jackpot between them because we're not very good at being random no we're not good at being random and we're also not good at changing our minds and you know the ability to change our minds and our perceptions on a situation is another huge way to deal with uncertainty and actually like you said in the book be able to better predict or or make make a choice in an outcome especially in these polarizing times how does that really affect our ability to be resilient through this yeah i think changing your mind is super super important and i guess you know the the pandemic has illustrated that you know idea that um you know the evidence was coming in all the time but people were stuck with the messages that they got at the start of the pandemic for example that covid wasn't airborne and that you know we shouldn't worry about the the air and actually you know all the evidence is stacked up to suggest that you know covid is airborne and we need if we're going to tackle this we need to you know implement ways of cleaning the air or uh a filtering the air or, or recycling the air um so things like that but yeah so w- when new evidence comes in it isn't always easy to adjust for that especially when it comes in incrementally so there is a there's a theorem that I talk about in the book which is called bayes theorem which is a way of reasoning about evidence a way of updating your beliefs and one of the lessons from bayes theorem is that you should change your opinion incrementally in very slowly as each new piece of evidence comes in you need to change your opinion if you don't if you just say oh well, it's only one small piece of evidence and you neglect it eventually this mountain of evidence piles up and you're still sitting with the old view that you know covid wasn't airborne or whatever it was and you haven't taken account of all of these new pieces of information because they came in incrementally so part of bayes theorem says change your opinion incrementally and the, another key lesson is to be able to consider a different point of view because if you are 100% certain of your initial conviction then you'll never be able to change your mind so having uncertainty in this sense is really really important mm that is such a great takeaway from this interview if nothing else change your mind incrementally it's really good i remember when i was uh, having children 
someone passed me a book that was an anti-vax book. And, and that was the first thing I read on vaccinations. And then I decided, wow, this is horrible. I shouldn't vaccinate my kids. And then incrementally, I read other articles that chipped away at that reasoning. And I'm so glad I did, because otherwise, I, you know, I might be stuck back with that belief. I, um, yeah, I think that's the problem with with really hardcore anti-vaxxers. They they don't allow any uncertainty in their position. And so they, they, they don't allow any new evidence to come in and influence them, even though, you know, the weight of evidence is, is, is massively for safety of, of vaccines. They have this view of 100% certainty. And like I say, you need to have some uncertainty in your convictions in order to be able to, to change your mind. So this is a little bit away from, you know, maybe your wealth of knowledge as a statistician, but then, but why do you believe that we hold on to these certainties or that we, we need to believe that there's, that there's certainties. It has something to do with feeling like we have conviction or something like that. Yeah, hundred percent. I think with things like uh, the anti-vax movement or, or various other sort of conspiracy theories, I suppose, that sprung up in particular during the pandemic. It's people wanting to, I think, assert that they have control over a situation and and to 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 say, well, actually, I'm not going to go with the mainstream and, and say what, you know, I'm just going to believe what's being presented to me. I'm going to do my own research, whatever that may mean, and to come up with other ideas. And it helps people to feel in control. So in some senses, I think it's a, it's a very natural thing to want to do. Uh, but in some, you know, in some senses, uh, you know, and occasionally, very occasionally, there are situations where the mainstream point of view is not the the one that, that fits with the underlying truth. Um, but yeah, I think it just helps people to feel in control and to, yeah, to have some agency over, over their actions and over the information that's coming into them. Well, Kit, are there some things that we truly cannot predict? I think there are. I think... Um, so the weather is something we try to predict all the time. And actually, we're, we're actually getting better and better, and we are quite good at it. And actually, weather forecasts up to about a week are generally fairly reliable. And every decade, we gain about a day of forecasting accuracy. So we can extend that further and further out because computers are getting better, our models are getting better. Um, but actually, there is there is a horizon beyond which we are not able to predict the weather. And this is because of a phenomenon called chaos. Uh, so chaos says that, um, that it, in mathematical terms, it's it's called sensitive dependence on initial conditions. But what that basically means is, if you don't know exactly where you're starting from, then there's some uncertainty in what's going on, and that uncertainty will, to some degree, amplify over time. So these you know chaotic systems like the weather mean that you can never predict what's going to happen beyond a certain horizon. Now things like planetary motion, we can predict. We think where the planets are going to be in many you know, hundreds, thousands of, of years time, but even the planets are a chaotic system. And beyond a certain time, we won't be able to tell whether Jupiter is going to be on one side of the solar system or the other, just because we can't measure exactly where every planet is precisely uh, with enough accuracy at the moment. So there are certainly systems, many complicated systems, especially these non-linear systems that we talked about, which are subject to chaos and beyond a certain horizon, a, a chaos prediction horizon, we aren't going to be able to say what will happen in those systems. Well, as regular humans moving about this planet, what is the worst way for us to approach uncertainty? Because my money is on the idea of normalcy bias. We just expect that 
tomorrow will be like today. And, and as you show on your book, that has led to some really bad outcomes. So what is the worst thing we can do to be prepared? Yeah, normalcy, you're absolutely right. Normalcy bias, which is inher inherently linked to this linearity bias that we have, that we just think things are going to carry on as they are, or they'll change at a constant rate as they've been doing for many, many years. And most of the time, that's actually a really good assumption because actually most of the time tomorrow is going to be like today. But actually, occasionally, extraordinary things happen, and uh, and it's how we react when those extraordinary things happen. So at the moment in the UK, we're experiencing a, a storm, it's called still Chiron, and um, and and it's you know things the bad bad things happening in the US. You obviously have much bigger scale storms like hurricanes, which we don't get so much in the UK, um, and unfortunately, even when people are warned that a hurricane is coming in often people just can't get into their heads, just can't imagine that their 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 comfortable situation they're currently in is is going to be disrupted. And so actually, unfortunately, in, in various storms, um, a large proportion of the people who die in those storms are in mandatory evacuation areas, but they just can't believe that the storm is going to disrupt their life in, in a way that they, they can't really foresee, and therefore they stay where they are. And this happens over and over again with natural disasters. It happened on the Titanic with people not going to the lifeboat surf early, early enough. It happened in Pompeii with people not evacuating the city when they saw Vesuvius erupting. It happens all the time throughout history, and it's still happening today. Mm. Yeah, I, I've never been to Pompeii. I've always wanted to go. What were the models at that time that were given to the folk that lived in Pompeii about Mount Vesuvius erupting? Yeah, I don't think there were any official sort of models about what was going to happen. I think they just saw that exactly. there was this huge plume of gas and smoke that was coming down from, well, was, was firing out of the mountain. And then there was a period of time where uh, it was probably quite dangerous. There was probably some sort of pumice, you know, falling down, some bits of rock and stuff, but it was still okay to evacuate. It would have avoided the certain death that was coming when when the pyroclastic flow came down the mountain with the lava and so on. Uh, there were several hours when people did indeed evacuate, but there were a large number of people who didn't evacuate. And partly uh, that was because I think they just couldn't foresee that their, their comfortable current situation was going to be disrupted. They were subject to this normalcy bias. In the book, you have so many great examples like that from history, and one of them is uh, from more recent history, and that was the belief that the iPhone was not going to take off. It was not going to be successful. Yeah. <laughs> Why was that? Yeah, I think... Yeah, that we've had several of these, like the iPhone's not going to be successful, people saying that, you know, trains just are never going to take on. This is the era of the horse. Um, you know, all these sorts of, all these sorts of predictions... Um, again, it, it's it's relevant to normalcy bias is relevant. People just can't foresee these disruptive technologies coming in and and taking over in the way that uh, the way that they have done. I think people just, you know, there there are two there are perhaps two reasons: a normalcy bias, but b also sometimes people have vested interests in making sure that these other technologies don't take over. I think the guy that said the iPhone would never take over was uh, was a uh, an employee of Microsoft and so therefore had some sort of vested interest as well. Even if it wasn't uh, conscious in him, he had some sort of vested interest in suggesting the iPhone wouldn't do well uh, because he was working for a competitor. So yeah, lots of mixed uh, emotions, I suppose, going into these prop proclamations. In some ways, I, I suppose we all wish that the iPhone didn't take off and, and 
you know, be so, so ubiquitous and so omnipresent in our lives. Yeah, I think we have to be disciplined to make sure we put them away every now and again so that we're not ruled by them for sure, yeah. Exactly. Well, the book is How to Expect the Unexpected. It's the science of making predictions and the art of knowing when not to. Our guest is Kit Yates. And Kit, what a what a great book. So Such an interesting topic. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Welcome back to Coal Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. Our next guest is local resident Karen Strauss. Karen spent most of her professional career focused on comparing and evaluating energy and electricity generating alternatives, including nuclear power plants. She also spent three decades as a member of the Louis Strauss family. Louis Strauss was a key figure in the story about Robert Oppenheimer and was a founding director of the Atomic Energy Commission. So, an interesting tie-in to Karen Strauss, who joins us in the studio. Karen, welcome to Coal Science Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, let's start off with explaining to us and our listeners what nuclear energy is, because I think especially after Oppenheimer, we envision nuclear energy as a massive bomb. But what we want to talk about is nuclear energy specifically for electricity generation. What is that? What is it? Great place to start, Katie. A nuclear power plant is a gigantic steam kettle. What do I mean? To produce electricity, we need to spin turbines, which spin generators, which are giant magnets and copper coils. So how does the turbine spin? With wind, with water, the pressure of those turns the turbines. In other power plants, like in coal plants or nuclear plants or natural gas plants, something is burned to create heat to make steam to turn the turbines. So how do we make the steam? Well, we can either burn fossil fuels, which we have done historically, or we can use the natural process of a nuclear fissioning, which is a little bitty atom of uranium splitting apart. When it splits apart, it creates heat. That heat is captured to boil the water, to make steam, to turn the turbines, to spin the generators, to create the electrical current. So it's literally a way to turn water to steam to turn turbines. So that little atom splitting apart for the lovely service of making us, you know, electricity, how is that different than from, like we said earlier, a bomb that we see explode like in the movie Oppenheimer? Uh, There's only one similarity. Way back when, depending on your sense of time on the planet, when the planet was created, uranium was created. That's the only thing they have in common is there is a uranium. In a nuclear power plant, raw natural uranium is enriched up to about 3% fissionable material that'll split. In a nuclear weapon, it's the opposite. It's about 97%. So... One is they have nothing to do with each other except that way back when, when the planet was created, the raw material for both of them was created. So it's kind of like your propane tank on your deck versus fuel for an aircraft. Wow. Okay. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Karen Strauss. She's a local resident, and for the entirety of her career, she worked on energy solutions for Westinghouse for a very long time. And then you were also in public health. 
Maybe you can just give us a, a survey, an overview of your career. Um, Lynn, it, my career started off, honestly, growing up uh, on a lot of farmland. And when the utilities wanted to put power wires across the farm, um, I decided that wasn't a good idea. So I started off as an environmentalist. Um, and I, my goal has always been about environment, ecology. I went to college. I was one of many students in the class complaining about how horrible the world is from an environmental standpoint. And the professor said, what are you going to do about it? Yes. Life-changing yeah. moment. I switched to um, environmental sciences, economics, and engineering. Looked at the various energy technologies available when I was graduating college. Far and away, nuclear power was the cleanest option possible on the planet at that time. And that's what I call either cradle-to-cradle or cradle-to-grave analysis. Um, so I graduated college, went to Westinghouse. Um, at there, I was in nuclear safety, reg nuclear regulatory, and I got to be the project engineer for two nuclear plants in Spain that I will tell you are still chugging along, making electricity for Spain. Um, I then went back to school and got a doctorate in public health because I wanted to expand from environment and ecology to include public health as a holistic view of what we're doing with our time here. Okay, so this is a very interesting, what some people would call a contradiction, but what you were going to tell us is not a contradiction at all to be an environmentalist and to be a proponent of nuclear energy. So I hope you'll expand on that and then also explain what the biggest hurdle is to pursuing nuclear energy as a clean option and how public perception is probably the greatest challenge. When you talk nuclear, the first thing people remember is Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. But you've just been talking about nuclear energy safety. So Lynn, let me, let me pick on two very specific words that you used. One is environmentalist. I am an ecologist, an environmentalist, a conservationist. Nuclear power is my number one choice for baseload electricity production. Why? Because here are my values, public health and safety, the use of the resources that we have available. There is no other good use for uranium other than to make electricity. The economics, environmental justice, land use, for example, the nuclear power plants in operation right now, 92 plants around the country, they replace 2.3 million acres of solar panels and about 13 million acres of wind farms. That's just land use and all the materials that go into it. So environmentalists, what are your priorities? Some, for some people who call themselves environmentalists, their priorities are economics, political systems. To me, that is not what environment is. Environment is pure. What are we doing to our planet and to ourselves as we try to live better lives? So it's really a definition that has been grossly abused by a lot of people. So that's number one. Number two, let's talk about nuclear accidents. 
Three Mile Island happened 43 years ago. Chernobyl happened 37 years ago. Fukushima happened 22 years ago. Okay, let's be real here. Who can tell me how many people die annually from fossil fuel emissions? The answer is over half a million people are really dead every year from fo just from fossil fuel emissions, not counting accidents, transportation, mining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, one of the advantages of nuclear power is when there is an accident at the nuclear power plant in the United States, we don't see a public health effect and we don't see an environmental effect. The way Chernobyl from 37 years ago and Fukushima from 22 years ago were designed, those literally cannot happen in the United States. We have a different design. Now, Russia has the same design we do after Chernobyl. So let's talk about public health and safety, daily operations. We've had nuclear power plants operating in this country for 60 years, 60 years. So we see that. So how much of our electricity in this country today and what percentage is nuclear? Because it seems like it's an obvious choice, but yet we're not going down that path. And what do we compare to other countries? Um, there's 30 countries right now using nuclear power. We um, produce about one fifth of the electricity in our country from nuclear power plants. That varies by state. Uh, when Vermont Yankee was operating, Almost 90% of Vermont's energy came from nuclear power. What happened to nuclear power? It was a combination of, um, in my opinion, misuse of values. At some point, I'd like to talk about radiation. Take the fear out of radiation. Just take that off the table. It was a misuse of values. It was 17 and 18% interest rates in the 70s, and nobody could afford to do anything. So a lot of nuclear plants got canceled then. And it's just has, it's been a political football as opposed to a realistic, how are we gonna create electricity the best possible way we have? Well, let's talk about radiation because I know one of the fears that people have is the, 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 the waste from a plant and they store it out in, in Western Utah somewhere. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. We're envisioning cement encasings that glow that have to be buried miles under the earth. But what really is the waste byproduct of a nuclear power plant? Um, I'm gonna answer that second. I'm gonna talk about radiation first because okay. it's all about anything nuclear Usually radiation is the next word or the next concept that comes with it. What is radiation? Radiation is a absolutely natural phenomenon of the splitting of atoms in the earth. It's been around since the earth has been around. We are all exposed to natural sources of radiation. Park City in particular, we're on what's called the Colorado Plateau. So we get more radiation just literally living in Park City than a person living on the Atlantic coast or in, this, in the lower Southwest or in the coastal regions. Every time we go up a thousand feet, so from between Park City and Kimball Junction, you get a little bit more background radiation. Why? Because of the naturally occurring radiation coming from the earth. And the closer you are to the sun, the more solar radiation you get. So we get cosmic radiation, solar radiation coming down at us. We get natural radiation from fissioning 
um, atoms and radon coming up from the earth. We live in a radioactive world. We always have. We've evolved in a radioactive world. So, for example, if you take a flight across country, you get four units for millirem of radiation. If you live literally on the boundary of a nuclear power plant for a year, you get less than one. If you live on the boundary of a coal plant for that same year, you're going to get an additional three units or more of radiation. Why? Because naturally occurring radioactive materials occur with coal. They're released along with a lot of other stuff out of a coal plant. So that's radiation. It's a natural phenomenon, absolutely understood, nothing to be scared of. I'm a, I'm a breast cancer survivor. I had 37,000 units of radiation, and I'm here, and it saved my life. So radiation is a useful tool. It's not something to be fearful of. Nuclear waste. What is nuclear waste? In a nuclear power plant, if you imagine a ski pole about 14 feet tall, uh, nice and shiny silver, that's what the rods are look like in a nuclear power plant. Um, and inside those rods are little pellets about the size of the first joint on your index finger. Nuclear waste is literally inside those rods. It's solid ceramic encased in titanium. So if you took all of the nuclear, high-level nuclear waste from around the country since the beginning of nuclear power 60 years ago, 100% of the nuclear waste could be stacked on a football field about 10 yards high. 100% of it. Now, let's go onto that football field with our 10-yard high stack. 97% of that material can be reused. It could be recycled. It could be recaptured as useful radioactive materials, as useful fuel in another nuclear power plant. So if your whole life, the, all the electricity you ever used your whole life came from nuclear power, you would personally be responsible for about a coffee cup full of waste. Wow. So it's tiny. Is it radioactive? Yes. Another misconception of radiation is you hear people say, well, it lasts for 4 billion years. That's a good thing. The slower the half-life, the less it affects your health. So the ones you want to be concerned about are the shorter-lived ones, the 30-year half-lives, the 12-year half-lives, etc. All of this is encased. We know how to shield from radiation. It's really straightforward. So it's there's literally nothing mysterious about it from an engineering, scientific, public health point of view. So nuclear waste not only is manageable, but it's a tiny volume. There have been over 20,000 shipments of radioactive materials in the past few decades. Zero accidents. There have been literally more than a million road miles accumulated moving radioactive materials around the country, whether it's for medical use or industrial use or nuclear power, zero accidents having anything to do with the cargo. So going back to the 1970s, and by the way, that was a very useful explanation. Thank you for that, Karen. Um, going back to the 1970s when you were starting your career, they were talking about climate change then. I assume they called it something different, but that was something that I didn't realize. And Yeah, Lynn, thank you. Literally 50 years ago, 
and longer, the National Academy of Sciences were publishing reports saying the impact on public health of fossil fuels is a disaster. The impact on our environment from burning fossil fuels is an impending disaster. We need to stop burning things. That's the whole point of fossil fuels is you have to burn them. And when you burn something, as we all know, you get particulate emissions and gas emissions. So literally back in the 1970s, the National Academy of Sciences and scientists around the world were issuing warnings saying greenhouse gases are a mounting problem. We have got to do something different or we're heading for, guess what, where we are now. Um, and so nobody listened. Mm -hmm. Or if the people who did listen didn't have the power to do anything about implementing worldwide energy policy to prevent where we are now with our greenhouse gases. So again, I'm an environmentalist. I want a power source that doesn't produce nitrous oxides, that doesn't produce sulfur oxides, that doesn't release mercury, that doesn't release particulates. Nuclear yeah. power. Yeah. I have heard so many scientists say that, that we have to use nuclear energy. We have to. That the renewable alternatives, solar and wind, like you say, well, they're wonderful, they're great, but they're inconsistent because they, you know, they rely on wind and sunlight. And yet nuclear energy, well, maybe you could explain this. How is it that it's not renewable because there is a, a finite amount of uranium? It actually is considered a renewable. Okay. Again, looking at it from a science, environment, ecology standpoint. Remember that football field mm -hmm. with our stack of 10 yards tall? 97% of that is recapturable, okay. most of which could be reused in a nuclear power plant. That's what a breeder reactor, if you might have heard the term, it's a way to recycle the fuel. You literally, as you're using that heat from that splitting atom, you're making more fuel. So that's the term breeder. You're literally making more fuel as you create electricity. And I, I just, I wanna be clear about something. For There's different kinds of needs in this country. We need solar, we need wind, we need low head hydro, we need nuclear we need to get away from the fossil fuels, particularly coal. Um, and I'd, I'd love to talk about the Utah picture. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Cause I know a few years ago, they were talking about putting in a, was it a nuclear plant outside of Green River? And one of the big um, points of contention was the amount of water. And also I know the price, putting a nuclear plant is not cheap. But if we were to invest the billions of dollars in putting in a nuclear power plant, how does that offset our carbon outputs from the coal that we're burning? So there's two things. If you think of solar, wind, hydroelectric, and nuclear, they all have this one critical thing in common. It costs a whole lot to build them, but once they're built, fuel cost is not an issue. So with solar and wind, you get the fuel when it's there, which is why they're located where they are. With nuclear, older generation nuclear plants got a third of the fuel replaced every couple of years. 
new generation nuclear plants won't need to be refueled for about 10 years. So the fuel cost, it isn't the issue, it's getting the plant built. If we could get our regulatory operations in order for across the board for every single type of power production, we would see nuclear plants built on time, on budget, just like any other capability, industrial capability. With Utah in particular, we get about 86% of our electricity from burning mostly coal and a little bit of natural gas. We get about 12% from solar right now, and the remaining 2% comes from things like biomass um, and heat capture. Um, if we could replace that coal, we would be replacing literally thousands of metric tons of pollutants in the form of gas and particulates if we use nuclear power. Water was a key issue for this uh, plant. One of the good things about um, the newer plants is they can recycle that water, so they're not in a constant use. And the cost, the, the cost is, is a big topic because what's the real cost? If the regulatory process were efficient and effective, the cost would go down for across the board for all, all of our energy technologies. Well, and being that you have a doctorate in public health, you really see the, the overall picture, you know, the, the long-term effects of coal burning and these particulates that are put out in the atmosphere. But yet we don't look at those numbers. We don't look at the sick time and the inefficiencies and- And the what, deaths. And the deaths, exactly. And the real deaths. As compared to a, I don't know, what what's a new power plant now, $30 billion or $3 billion? It's a it, lot of bees. It depends on, how, it how, depends on how big you're making it because now so, they come in little bitty sizes. <laughs> so how can we create the numbers or someone like you, who's very much a proponent, to say, look, here are the numbers. Here's the cost of coal-fired power plants, not just in the building, but everything after that, and especially from a public health perspective. Um, the, the term externalities is important to understand. Externalities are the costs that are not included in the dollar amount. It's, a, it's an economic term. The externalities of fossil fuels have never been counted in their costs. The cost of premature deaths from the inhalation of particulates and gaseous materials, the degradation of our environment, the mercury released at the burning of coal, those are not literally not counted in the costs. You can say how much a ton of coal costs, very pick your day, pick your month. You can say how much it costs to build a power plant, but what about all of those externalities? So the costs of those have never been realistically presented. Um, with a nuclear power plant, again, it's a baseload plant. It is one that functions 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, gets refueled two to every two to 10 years, depending on the design of the plant. Um, what comes out of it is clean steam, literally cleaner than our drinking water, and tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of radiation. Like I said, you'd get less than one unit living next to it for a whole year. You get more than that going shopping in Kimball Junction. <laughs> Um, so, and yeah, listen, so I, I want to say one more thing about Utah. We don't produce a lot of our own electricity. What does that mean? We wheel it in from our surrounding neighbors. So we want more electricity here. It is 
about 2,000 miles worth of new transmission distribution lines that are going to have to come into Utah to get all that extra power we all want. Where is it going to come from? For example, the University of Utah is very proudly saying it is now running a lot on geothermal energy. That's awesome and true. Where's the power plant? The power plant's in Nevada. So you got to get the geothermal energy from Nevada to the university. If we want to plug in our electric cars, electric cars in my environmental universe are only as clean as the power producing, producing the charge. You plug in your electric vehicle in Park City, you're using 86% coal. So by the time you've charged it overnight, you've released about as many pollutants as you have running a gasoline engine. Mm. So let, I'm just asking people to be realistic, you know, and say, if you're going to be a voice in this, please think it through and don't, don't, be, uh, don't be taken by Hollywood type images. Those are not useful for our energy policy. From what you're saying, Karen, and we just have about a minute left, it's also not useful for us to say radiation bad, Absolutely. nuclear bad, Absolutely. because it's only a minute portion of the story. Can you quickly tell us about the country that uses the most nuclear energy? How much it, I always, I always just kind of in a very uneducated way say, oh, it must be France. Mm -hmm. Well, but there, there's two different questions. Who generates the most from nuclear power? Yay, United States. We generate more nuclear and electricity from nuclear power than any other country on the planet. Whoa. The country that uses the most in France, 70% of their electricity comes from nuclear. Um, in Belgium, half of their electricity comes from nuclear power plants. Uh, Finland, almost a third of their electricity. Sweden, almost a third. Switzerland, about 30%. So different countries, we're at about 20%, 18 to 20% in this country. But we make the most, it's just we use a lot. So, so just to clarify on that, we make the most. It's not that we're exporting it. It's just that we're a very large country. Exactly. And so we would need to make <clears throat> many of a magnitude of many times greater than yeah exactly so between our our advanced um our advanced civilization so to speak and we want more electricity we want electric cars we want to convert agricultural uh, processing to electricity we want to convert lots of you know gas and oil burning to electricity where's that going to come from and so that's that's back down to that real question well, hopefully this, I know this gave Lynn and myself a lot to think about and reconsider, and hopefully a lot of our listeners. Karen, we will include, I know there's a number of great websites to go and be, and to really educate yourself on the possibilities, importance of, of nuclear energy. So we will include that on the website. But Karen Strauss, Karen, thank you so much for devoting your My life, pleasure. one, to nuclear energy, <laughs> to environmentalism and public health, because we need more experts out there like you that really truly see the big picture. So thank you for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Thank you for having me. I'm always available. <laughs> thank you for tuning into Cool Science Radio here on KPCW 91.7 in Park City, Utah. And next week is Thanksgiving, so that means that Turkey Confidential will air in place of Cool Science Radio. Tune in to hear the tips, tricks, 
and most importantly, mishaps of the biggest cooking day in America with host Francis Lamb of The Splendid Table. And then Cool Science Radio, Radio will be back on November 30th where we'll talk about the Lake Powell fossil find and their adventures in getting the fossils out before the lake rose. And also we'll be discussing the greatest snow on earth, which is ours, and what truly makes the powder the incredible experience that it is. That's uh, November 30th here on Cool Science Radio.